What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Rob Drummond, the linguist whose recent book, You're All Talk, explores the enormous diversity found within the spoken word across the UK, from the nuances of regional accents to dialects and slang. Joining Rob in conversation is Intelligence Squared's executive producer, Hannah Kay. Let's join Hannah now with more. Today, I'm delighted to have as our guest, Rob Drummond. Rob, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much. Rob is Professor of Sociolinguistics at Manchester Metropolitan University, where his research explores the relationship between spoken language and identity. He recently completed a large research project called Manchester Voices, which investigated the accents, dialects and identities of people in Greater Manchester. He runs the Accentism Project, an online resource which collects and shares stories of language-based prejudice. He does a lot of work with schools, colleges and the media on the subject of language and identity. And he's just published his first book written specifically for a general audience. And it's called Your All Talk, Why We Are What We Speak. And here it is. Rob, first of all, what exactly is a sociolinguist? Well, um, sociolinguists, we, we look at the kind of interaction between language and, and society, which doesn't sound that, maybe doesn't sound that profound, um, but it, it's actually, you know, it's very hard to think of language which doesn't interact with society in some way. Um, you know, there's some kind of abstract models of language and some areas of maybe computer language, which, which you know, which don't in the same way. But we're interested in in how people use language in an everyday on an everyday basis, how people actually communicate, um, and so that can be looking at quite often how language varies, how language changes over time, and how language varies between well between individuals, between individual speakers, um, but also between individual uh, speakers and and their groups, between social groups of speakers, but also how it varies within the individual. So how we all speak differently depending on the situation we're in, depending on who we're speaking to and, and why we're speaking to them and, and the whole context. So we're very interested in how those kind of how those things interact again with with who we are, with 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 our kind of social sense of identity. And that involves our personal sense of identity, but also um, ideas of group identity and how other people perceive us. Right. Well, I want to start off with this famous quote by George Bernard Shaw, which is, it is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman hate or despise him. Now, that was written in 1916. If we were to swap in British person for Englishman, how true is that still today? I think it is still true. I think there's, um, there's, I mean, Things, things are different in some ways. I think um, people are exposed to a lot more variation, a lot more different varieties of, of language and, and different varieties of English. And so there's a lot more acceptance of different varieties in some, in, in most areas, I guess. But still, we have incredible judgments. We make incredible judgments about others purely based on the way they speak. And because because the way we speak relates so strongly to um, to who we are, to different facets of our identity, and different in terms of you know social class and race and ethnicity and gender and social class, well social class and and even kind of sexuality as well. 
all of these things are so heavily related to the way we speak. Um, it is, I think it is still quite, quite true that people make these judgments and often quite, you know, often quite quick judgments um, about others purely due to the way they sound. Absolutely. And I don't think people are really aware of, of how judgmental they're being. Um, you talk in your book about high numbers of students who say they've experienced um, criticism or mockery for their accent. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this was a study commissioned by the Sutton Trust. And it was carried out, carried out by some people um, who run this project called Accent Bias Britain. Uh, it's a really, really good, really good project. And they're looking at, you know, kind of perceptions of, of different accents and how that affects uh, people's lives. And yeah, it was through their their research, they found, you know, these this sort of 40% of students. And, and it's something that I think is quite, I think people can relate to if you work with students, if you work at universities, or if you are a student. Um, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm forever kind of collecting stories and people's experiences about, about their, their kind of accent, accent life. And, um, and, and it's, and it's really common. People do get singled out and often it's quite what seems on the surface, quite light hearted mockery, but it, when it's, when it's constant, when it just keeps happening, you know, it's, it's stuff like. I don't know, somebody moves to a new area. And of course, at, at university is a time when people often do move to a new area. And it might be it's just things as simple as, you know, other groups of people noticing the way somebody pronounces a particular word. And this was, oh, you know, say that again. Or listen to how they say this. And, and it kind of, it can, be, it can be seen as lighthearted. But, you know, I've, I've spoken to the people who it happens to. And uh, it's, not always, it's not always received in that way. I can tell you that. Yes, yeah, so... Would you say that accent discrimination is a form of prejudice that just isn't getting enough attention? Yeah, I th I, absolutely. And I think the, the, the problem with, with language, accent-based prejudice or language-based prejudice more generally is it's still, quite, um, it's still quite accepted. You know, it's still, like you say, people can make jokes about it and not feel they're doing anything, you know, offensive in, you know, in, the, in similar ways that they just simply wouldn't for... for you know, issues of race and ethnicity or gender or sexuality, those things are kind of called out a lot more, uh, a lot more clearly and a lot more, a lot more publicly. Um, and, and the problem with language-based uh, prejudice is it's, it's often just a cover for, for another kind of prejudice. It's often, you know, routinely kind of class-based prejudice um, because, you know, the, the, the more noticeable kind of stronger so-called regional accents tend to happen sort of um you know they're, they're related to to the social scale so higher up the social scale there's there's less regional different differentiation anyway and so when somebody is being being singled out for speaking in a particular way it's often really just a hidden sort of class-based prejudice when you go back and have a look at its roots and i'm not i'm not sort of saying that everybody who 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 does this is is automatically being prejudiced uh, in, in a kind of class-based way. But what I'm saying is, if we reflect on why that's happening, if we reflect on why those prejudices exist, then I think we can start to to see there's a, a kind of a social class pattern or a race and ethnicity pattern or a gender pattern or a sexuality pattern. Absolutely. Um, we obviously have a great variety of different accents in the UK, and some are more popular than others. Can you just tell us a bit about which accents tend to be more popular than others? Yeah, in the in the UK, it so it's quite interesting. Um, there's a there's a real sort of pattern, a consistent pattern with these things, and it's often the what's known as sort of received pronunciation or BBC English or the Queen's English or the King's English um, that scores quite highly when people are asked to rate accents and the way these things often work is sometimes people are asked to listen to accents and to rate them on scales of, I don't know, kind of uh, intelligence, education, friendliness, trustworthiness. Sometimes people are just given accent labels and sort of said, you know, imagine this accent and how would you rate this? Um, but yeah, accents such as RP tend to come high on on scales of, of education and, and professionalism uh, and prestige. Um, but maybe don't score so highly on measures of friendliness and trustworthiness. Those accents tend to be 
as often a kind of a, a Newcastle accent or a, nor- a North East England accent or some Scottish accents are seen as very trustworthy. Um, and then at the other end of the scale, we tend to get the uh, kind of Birmingham accents, West Midlands, Black Country accents, um, which 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 routinely score score kind of quite low on these kind of measures of uh, you know of prestige and and education uh, and uh, and kind of professionalism, and it, it's a really strange it's a really strange thing. It's a really fascinating thing from a social perspective. From a kind of purely objective linguistic perspective, it, it it makes no sense. You know, there's no there's nothing objectively better or worse um, about one accent over another. It, it's all obviously social baggage that we've acquired and social stereotypes that we acquire, and we we ju- just get kind of um, you know uh, revisited and recycled with the, each generation. But there is, you know, there there are these clear these clear patterns people do make again strong judgments about people on the basis of something as as arbitrary as a as a regional accent and is it the same in america are are there uh, sort of prejudices and associations with you know certain different accents in america say the texan accent or the boston accent yeah there are but i don't think the patterns are quite as as clear so you know when i've looked into this um there have been you know there there are there are endless survey. You can find endless kind of surveys about this, and and uh, reports, and magazine articles, and newspaper articles. Um, and to be fair, they they tend to be different each time. They tend to be, you know, one year it'll be the the a Texan accent is seen as the most attractive, and 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 in another survey that'll come bottom, and and Boston kind of is up and down. New York seems quite popular generally, so I I don't think there's the same. I don't think there's quite the same um, uh, consistency. There are still very strong attitudes, and uh, an African American English can be uh, can be negatively perceived in in lots of contexts, um, and and so can kind of you know southern states uh, of America. So, yes, there are definitely strong feelings, but I would say that the consistency isn't always quite the same as it is in the UK. I want to talk about some of the recent cases here in the UK where people have come under fire for their accent. I'm thinking in particular of the sports presenter, Alex Scott, and the uh, former Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, the, yeah, they, they're two people that, that have, um, they do get their accents commented on. I mean, Alex Scott, it was, it was, it was in particular when she was, she was doing some presenting, she was doing some coverage of the Olympics most recent Olympics and, um, and, uh, you know, she was doing, you know, a fantastic job presenting. And then for some reason, some people online decided to take issue with the way she was pronouncing particular words. And, uh, and it was for her, it was the, the sort of ING ending in, in words such as swimming and walking and cycling, which you pronounce as, as like in, so like walk in rather than walking and swim in rather than swimming. And people seem to take issue with this, um, and uh, and it's and similar with Pretty Patel actually. She she has the same kind of accent feature, and it's it, again it's quite it's quite unusual. It's it's a it's a it's a well known feature. It's a well known you know kind of it's a in terms of sociolinguistics, it's one that we we people have studied um, for for a long time uh, because it can be quite it can be quite again quite class class based uh, its its use and whether people say swimming or swimming. It it just seems uh, it always amazes me when people take the time to 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 write uh, you know even if it's just online to say well you know to to point out somebody's in in their view bad pronunciation and a it's just it's simply not bad pronunciation it's just an accent feature like any other um, but I just wonder what what goes through people's minds when they, when they decide to take the time. I'm kind of fascinated by it as well. I'm very against the whole idea of, um, you know, of, of calling people out in this way and for the, the kind of prejudice it shows. But I am also kind of, from a research academic perspective, fascinated by what, what, what drives this and where these attitudes come from. Can I just challenge you for a moment here, Rob? Um, I might have certain preferences for different, uh, particular kind of music or style of painting. 
isn't it okay for me to prefer a particular accent? Why is that not okay? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think, I think it is. I think it's, it's absolutely fine. And I, I, I agree with you in terms of we do have favorite, like say, favorite music, favorite, favorite sounds, favorite smells, favorite colors, favorite all sorts. Um, and then we, therefore, why shouldn't we have favorite accents? I think it's fine as long as it remains just a, a kind of a, a neutral favorite. It's just something you happen to like. The problem is once you get into favorites of anything, that would suggest there are others that you kind of dislike or don't like so much. And it's when that tips over into then attitudes towards individual people. So whether I, th you know, fine if you don't like a particular color, and you have or you have favorite colors, then you might see somebody oh they look fantastic wearing that color, and you think well that person doesn't look so good wearing that color. But that would be the end of it. You know, you wouldn't then treat them any differently just because you didn't like the color of their shirt. But because the way we speak is so tied to who we are, I think it's very it's very easy for those kind of preferences to then slip into actual prejudicial behavior, whether that's, you know, benefiting somebody due to the way they speak and, and treating them in a more positive way or treating somebody in a less positive way, in a negative way, simply because you don't happen to like their accent. So whenever people talk about kind of those kind of preferences, I would just always just suggest you, you kind of think, okay, well, why, why am I, why do I like this? And does it, and does it affect the way I'm actually treating people? Um, because obviously if it is affecting the way people, you treat other people, then it's, then it's a bit of an issue. So it's okay to have preferences, but not okay to be judgmental. Yeah. In, exactly. In, in my opinion, that's exactly it. Preferences are fine. And, and it's not, and I, it's nice to have preferences. And, and, and I think when people are interested in language, it's kind of, it, it just goes, it's, it's, it, it it goes with the with with the territory. You you like certain things. People might even have people have favorite words and favorite, you know, if you're really into it, favorite you know bits of grammar and and, and but definitely favorite sounds and and favorite act, and that's absolutely fine. You know, we just as long as we just don't then use those to judge other people. Yeah, I really love the Liverpudlian accent, and I used to watch that um, soap opera Brookside. You remember in the sort of eighties. I wasn't interested in the plot lines. I just wanted to hear them speaking with a Liverpudlian accent. I just find it <laughs> really attractive and interesting. That's good. That's a nice okay. thing to do. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, Britain is not an enormous country geographically, but it has this huge variety of accents. Um, can you explain just briefly the, the history of, of the English language, how it came to evolve and, and why we have so many different accents. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason we have so many accents now, I mean, it, it is all based on, on that, that history of, you know, we have, a, it's a very small place geographically, really, and considering how diverse the, the language is. And, um, and things, you, you can trace it back to, you know, right back in the beginning or the beginning as far as, you know, we're aware language-wise. In about, I think it's called 449 AD, when the the Angles and the Jutes and the Saxons come over from from um, what's now sort of Denmark and Germany, and come over to 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 Britain, and that would have, and before then it would have been kind of Celtic languages, and then these these Anglo-Saxons, as they're seen, that sort of pushes all of these Celtic languages um, away. That kind of pushes them westward and up into to Scotland and over in Wales and Cornwall and so on. And so that really then becomes the basis of of, of old English, these these Saxon uh, these Saxon varieties, um, and then a bit later you've got late eighth century you've got the Vikings come over using uh, Old Norse you know a related language but different and and they sort of settle up in the north you've got the north east northeast of England and the west of Scotland and and so they're all kind of using Old Norse up there and then down in the south and southeast uh, you've got uh, the Anglo Saxon. Um, then that kind of carries on for a bit, and then you've got the the Normans come over, William of Normandy in 1066. So he's bringing Anglo-French. Him and his people bring Anglo-French, which becomes no, uh, sorry, Norman French, which then becomes kind of what we know as sort of Anglo-French, Anglo-Norman French. Um, and then French then becomes the, the the language of of power and prestige, and English dies away a bit. It's seen as uncultivated. Um, but then English makes a bit of a, 
a resurgence as people sort of mingle and and uh, and intermarry. Um, and uh, and then it's but this English is now very much influenced by by French and by Latin through French, um, and you know comes to be kind of what we see as Middle English, um, and so you you can see that already there's so many varieties uh, of of language um, existing, and without much sort of communication between different areas, so people in different areas of the country are using quite different uh, varieties of. Of, of language, and then when it when it evolves into, like, say, what we know as Middle English, there's loads of different linguistic influences, and different people in different parts of the country will be using it slightly differently, and they, or you know, quite dramatically differently actually, and they won't be, you know, there won't be that much travel between different places, um, so, you know, lots of different varieties, and then as people do move about more, and after the Black Death, there were lots of there was a lot of population movement due to people dying and other people moving into different areas to work. And again, so therefore you have contact, and wherever you have contact, you have new sort of varieties uh, developing. And of course, through all this, you have to remember that language never, never stands still. So language, all natural languages evolve uh, through it through its speakers. Obviously, once they're you know as soon as there are uh, speakers of it, it will always change. And so all of these, all of the language and all of these different areas can, can evolve, they can evolve in their own different ways. So even though it's the same sort of language, it's, it's English, what we know is English, they were all evolving slightly differently in the different areas. Then you have kind of processes of standardization, you know, often sort of thought about, brought about by William Caxton um, in his printing press in the, uh, in the late sort of 15th century. Um, and and that starts to sort of standardize things in terms of, you know, he he had to choose a variety of English to use. He he was going to start printing things, and he thought, well, and he chose the variety of English that he was surrounded by in in Westminster, sort of where all the powerful and important people were. So that started to standardize that variety of English as being the most um, as the most prestigious. And so these, and then of course, you know, once things have been standardized a bit, and then. As we get into the over the following centuries, you start getting kind of dictionaries and pronunciation guides and grammar guides. But again, they're still they're based on this more prestigious model of English, this more kind of standard London, Southeast England, Cam- Oxford, Cambridge type of English. Um, and that puts that as the as the the most prestigious variety. But what happens now, of course, is you know we don't still we don't still live in our very separate areas where there's no real communication or there's no transport you know we we're very mobile we're exposed to the same media we have the same linguistic influences right across the country but we still have very different accents and and this is where i think the uh, you know we can really see the role of of identity in in this and i think the way we speak is a really clear way of 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 us expressing that identity and saying, look, I'm one of this group, I belong to this group of people, and I'm not one of that group, I don't belong to that group of people. And I think that's our way of, of marking those geographic differences, those uh, social class differences, those race and ethnicity differences, because of course English has also been very strongly influenced by people coming in more recently in terms of you know a huge sort of, um, or a really linguistically huge, very important influence from uh, uh, from kind of after World War Two, from the Caribbean, and what then what evolved into what might be seen as Black British English, but of course lots of variation within that as well. And then of course um, with uh, South Asian, especially South Asian sort of migration, again lots of different varieties. That those kind of varieties of English and those kind of languages, they all interact with with English. So again, we get lots of lots of different uh, lots of variation. So I think now we have so many different accents still because it's such a social thing, it's such a way of 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 indicating who we are and it's the way we navigate our our social worlds, which is why I think that accents just aren't disappearing. You know, people talk about accents disappearing, everyone's going to sound the same. And yeah, sure, some features you can hear that some features of some kind of maybe more traditional regional accents are are disappearing they're sort of merging and but other features are still as strong as ever and young and I do a lot of work with young people and honestly young people around the country just 
sound as different as, as they ever did. So the accents aren't disappearing anytime soon. No, absolutely. Um, you mentioned um, immigration as, as, as a force for, for, for change. Um, this is called is multicultural London English. Is that right? Well, that's one. That's one kind of variety that's emerged because of this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about it, its particular characteristics? Yeah. So it's it, this is a really interesting um, sort of. I mean, it's we, it's called multicultural London English. This is that was a, a term sort of coined by um, the the linguists who started researching it. Um, I think it's, uh, you, you know, whenever linguists come along, kind of name things, and then you think, well, the actual speakers of it is just, it's just their language. We don't have to name anything. It's just the way the way people speak. But the way that was, um, that's been looked at, it, it's, it's the result of, I say, lots of different linguistic communities living in London and interacting in London. So London, obviously, a very diverse, very vibrant sort of place. Um, and and these and all of these different languages, often varieties of English, but often completely different languages, interact to create a version of English English that is that is different from other places. So it has influences from um, uh, from kind of Jamaican Creole and um, other West Indian um, uh, uh, accents and, and varieties of language, but also it draws on you know traditional Cockney. And uh, and and other other kind of varieties that were there already, and then. But I think what's interesting about it is it 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 takes on sort of it takes on a life of its own. Varieties of English can take on lives of their own when they become associated with particular groups. And and I think with multicultural London English, especially, it became very much associated with you know, particular ways of life and, and even particular music. And so I did some work looking at the kind of grime music and how that relates to different varieties of language. And so so grime music kind of uses multicultural London English as its as its basis. That's the, the kind of language people are using. Um, and it's often associated with particular kind of race, uh, races and ethnicities, um, but, but it doesn't have to be as well because it, it sort of, it goes beyond that as well. So it's a you know it's a fascinating it's it's a fascinating kind of variety of of language and I think it's 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 used elsewhere as well so we've looked at um people using it in different so I looked at it being used in in Manchester where I'm based um and there I kind of I see it as you know what we call kind of multicultural british english which is sort of similar to mle multicultural london english but with particular regional uh accent so so the people i was working with in manchester they were using mle but with a kind of manchester accent you could tell that it wasn't they weren't from london there was something so they were retaining some of the kind of maybe not manchester but some of the more northern english features and you can see this if you look again with grime music if you listen to grime artists from around the country i think that's a really good uh, example of how this multicultural british english um might exist because you can hear sort of Crime artists from Leeds or Liverpool or uh, Glasgow, um, just just sounding different. They're using MLE, but they still retain particular accent features from their local area. So I think it's a you know, and this is a this is again this is why the like language is just so fascinating to look to look at. Is there any evidence that it's affecting white British? Um, accents at all is it was spilling out yeah but it, it, i think it is because i think i think it's um so yeah i think it is well i i know it is in terms of sort of younger people i've i've worked with so certainly the when i was i was doing a project in in manchester with some young people and there was no doubt that the, that particular way of speaking went across kind of different ethnic groups uh, w- without a doubt um now I'm kind of I'm I'm very aware of this that w- when I was doing this research all I was rep- all I could report on was what I was seeing there with this particular group and I'm very wary of kind of generalizing outside of this um but but I mean I do hear it I do I do kind of hear uh people using language um using particular features of what might be seen as MLE or multicultural British English and it would be kind of speakers from all different uh 
racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, so the only reason I'm, I'm slightly dubious about it is because it, this this it brings in a whole question of kind of authenticity and um, and who is able to use different varieties of language and and whether language whether varieties of language ever belong to particular groups and so and so I think that's something that kind of really needs to be looked at while we're uh, you know when when that area is being discussed on the one hand you've got once you've got groups of people all growing up in similar surroundings, having the same influences, um, listening to the same music, having the same lifestyles, uh, then obviously they're going to speak in similar ways because again, it's this kind of sense of group identity and it's a big part of, of, of who we are. But I think that's quite different from then when you hear, you know, you might hear some, you know, some kind of young sort of middle-class white boy from a leafy suburb using particular language and think, well, okay, that's not really authentic. That's not, that's, you know, it, it, it might be used in a sense authentically that this is trying to portray a particular identity, but, you know, it might not quite come off. So I think, you know, when I'm talking about people using language in different ways and to portray different versions of themselves and, and, and it being, you know, it being an important part of this identity, context is always incredibly important as well. And I think, I think we have to be mindful of where particular varieties come from and who is, um, you know, well, yeah, who is entitled even to use them in different situations. Yeah. And in fact, in the book, you mention um, a few so high profile people like Tony Blair or George Osborne or Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez being, as it were, caught out trying to speak in, in a way to appeal to a particular audience, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's a really that's a, that's quite a common a common thing because, like I say, we we adjust the way we speak depending who we're speaking to, and I, that's not that's that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. That's part of being a good communicator, and I, I think I'm always quite, you know, I always I'm always quite wary of people who say, "Oh, I, I never change the way I speak," and and uh, you know, take me as I am or whatever. I think we're really because I think there's I think we often we all make at least small adjustments, or I think almost all of us make at least small adjustments. Um, and sometimes that's because you want to, uh, you know, maybe you're in a more formal situation and you want to portray a bit of a more kind of a more formal um, sort of persona at that particular time, you know, r rightly or wrongly, I, you know, maybe there's no need for it, but but I think that's what people naturally do. Um, but then it can work the other way. So when people in positions of power uh, who already maybe have quite a prestigious way of speaking, when they're trying to then sort of engage with 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 everyday people this is you know politicians especially um they can kind of adjust the way they speak uh maybe kind of how they would see it adjusting downwards as opposed to adjusting upwards in terms of kind of social scale and it can sometimes work and sometimes go horribly wrong i think i think i don't think tony tony blair used to do it um he, he wasn't terrible at it he was actually quite because he was very good i think uh, you know very con good communicator anyway um and so I think he did it fairly naturally. Um, then I remember, you know, there's a kind of quite famous clip of George Osborne doing it not so successfully. Um, because again, but it, again, it, it comes back to sort of perception and prestige and power as well. And, and the whole, you know, I think political affiliation will play a role in that as well. Um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she, she, was, she was, you know, apparently caught out doing it. And uh, she was adjusting the way she spoke in a particular uh, meeting or she was giving a talk and she was adjusting it towards kind of African-American English features, uh, you know, due to the audience. And she, she was sort of online, you know, on social media caught out, but she she very kind of clearly defended that and, and, and I think quite rightly defended that in that she adjust the way she speaks uh, all the time and she always has because of her background because of where she grew up and it was perfectly natural to to use different varieties of English I think I think for that in that situation I think that it was kind of being being kind of weaponized um, to to attack her really because I, I, I uh, from a linguistic point of view I kind of completely bought her her argument her defense that it was entirely natural and that's what she does anyway uh, and it might be that you know other, the other pol politicians do as well, but I, I I'm not so sure with um, with some of them. As you say, we all adjust our accents 
ever so slightly depending on the situation that we're in, even if we're not aware of it. We speak differently to our families from the way we would to our boss and that kind of thing. We do. I, and, I, and, some, and I say only slightly. For some of it, it's a, it's a big jump as well. I think, um, I think, I think the, the, most, the most obvious uh, changes are, are kind of towards some kind of standard, towards some kind of more what's perceived as a more prestigious way of speaking. Uh, and I think, so, so for, for, for a lot of us, that's maybe a small adjustment. And I certainly know that I have a, I don't know, I have a sort of a teacher voice or a, a broadcasting voice, uh, which it might be different from the voice I use with my family and friends. Um, but for other people, it's a, it, it's, it's a much bigger jump. Um, that, you know, if you, if you, if you do have a way of speaking that you know is going to be, is, is stigmatized in some way, or you know is going to be perceived negatively or you believe is going to be perceived negatively, then people will, you know, make all sorts of adjustments. And this might be across kind of, again, across social class sort of boundaries. It might be, again, to do with ethnicity. Um, and, you know, there's lots of of, uh, of, of people, experiences of people having to, you know, wanting to put on a, put on a white voice in particular contexts in, in work in, in order to, to be accepted, in order to, to survive. And so I think, you know, on the one hand, when we can kind of speak of slight adjustments that many of us have to make, and because, oh, that's interesting, oh, she's got a phone voice, and oh, he does that, and, and it's kind of quite sort of lighthearted. I think at the root of it is a really, for a lot of people, is a really, a really serious um, uh, issue where they genuinely feel the need to completely ch- change the way they speak simply in order to get on. Or in the case of some situations, simply in order to survive when we're talking about, you know, uh, experiences of, I don't know, young black British men in in the UK sometimes and dealing with authority and dealing with police and having to adjust the way they speak in particular ways simply to, you know, to kind of get on with their, get on with their lives. Yes. I mean, you talk in your book about some research in America about how um, black Americans using us as stereotypical African-American accent actually come off worse in legal cases, don't you? Yeah, there has been, there's, there's been, there's definitely been research um, in, into that. Uh, and with all, and even just with, you know, certainly with, with, um, with African-American uh, English, um, but also with kind of so-called native and non-native speaker English. So you know, when people are in, in sort of, these are often set up as kind of experiments. So people in kind of mock trials and mock juries and whatever, but would, would, you know, listen to people who have English quite clearly not have English as a first language. Um, and, and they get, they get perceived in a more negative way. I mean, this is a, this is a really important thing. And again, it goes back to this idea of the, the kind of language prejudice masking other prejudices um, and uh, and the assumptions we make purely due to the way somebody speaks and 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 you know there's it goes from the spectrum of being oh kind of quite light-hearted used for comedic effect and you know you know like I say somebody's phone voice and all oh, why does why do they sound so posh all of a sudden it can go from that right to the other end of hold on these these are these are people's lives where you know we need to be sure people are getting a, a you know a fair trial or a fair hearing despite the way they speak because the way they speak is being perceived in such a negative way it's a really it's a really serious serious issue absolutely linguistic profiling i think you call yeah, it in the book yeah 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 um, we've mentioned Alex Scott and Pretty Patel. Can you talk a bit about the way women's voices are perceived? Yeah, so I think it's no it's no coincidence that that um, Alex Scott was singled out for for comment, or Pretty Patel, or Angela Rayner, um, uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party. Um, they w- women do get uh, more criticism. Than, than men and I don't I think this is a this is a, a, a general pattern of of women being criticized more strongly for all sorts of things um 
And I think it's very much connected to criticism of women over the way people look um, and the way people behave. Uh, and and I think voice is just another example of that. And I think people, you know, say with the case of Alex Scott, you know, she was she was kind of pulled up for particular, literally for particular pronunciations, for particular, you know, ways she she said something. And there are there are other kind of male presenters doing exactly the same role who are using exactly the same features, but they don't get singled out. Or look at someone like Angela Rayner, who um, you know acknowledges the 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 you know some of the abuse she gets online, but due to the way she speaks. She she doesn't have anywhere near the kind of the strongest so-called regional accent among MPs or the shadow cabinet or you know there are other people who have stronger accents but but they don't get the same criticism and I I my interpretation of this along with many other people is that what's really being attacked here are for Angela Rayner kind of social class as well and Alex Scott and race and ethnicity for Alex Scott but primarily it's a it's a gender thing that women are routinely criticized more for the way they speak, even when they're using, even when men are using similar speech features, even when somebody's singling out, say, well, you say this, you know, it's really annoying the way, the way she says this. And there'll be men in, like say, in similar positions who are using the same features and just don't face that criticism. Um, actually, I'll give, actually, there's a really nice example. I'll give you one example. I was talking about this just yesterday with somebody. Um, it's a, it's a, so there's a, a feature that a feature of speech which re- people routinely don't like is is over, so-called overuse of the word like when people are throwing like into you know to a sentence where arguably it, it, when it's not meaning anything so people are like you know it's that kind of you know I was like that, that it, it doesn't ha- actually it's, it just helps the flow of the conversation it doesn't actually have meaning now the people who get singled out for this the most are young women that's who that's that's it's seen as a kind of a stereotypical young woman thing to do to say like all the time and they'll get singled out for it and, and, and anecdotally there's just loads of stories you know there's research into it as well but anecdotally as well people will talk about you know i've heard about young uh young women academics who have been singled out so they'll they'll give a talk at a conference and they'll have uh an older white male professor always the way will you know, literally gone up to them afterwards and, and said, oh, it's very interesting. Do you realize how many times you say like? And we'll kind of, the, you know, we'll, we'll sort of criticize the way, completely miss the point of thing. And, and, you know, what gives that person the right? Anyway, but the point is, uh, and I was giving a talk last night and, uh, and I, I sort of mentioned this because I made the same point and I said, I guarantee if anybody had recorded the talk I'd just given, actually, you could, we could do this now. Somebody could then listen back to this podcast and I, 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 I can almost guarantee I will have said, I think my one is kind of, I say kind of a lot. And uh, for the sake, it, it, again, it has no meaning. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have any meaning in that sense. It's just, uh, you know, it's kind of as I'm thinking about things. So I would use kind of in the same way that a younger woman might use like, but I won't get criticized for it. No one's ever come up to me at the end of a talk and said, oh, that's interesting, but do you know you say kind of a lot? Or basically, that's another one that a lot of people use. And and it's just, a, you know, if you just ask people, ask friends, ask anyone, have you ever been, has anyone ever commented on the way you speak? And um, and you start to get, there'll be, there'll be a pattern that it will be women have been called out more than men. Yeah, I'm sure I've been saying um and dar and sort of all the way through yeah, this and, that, and there's nothing, there's just nothing wrong with it. It's it, when anything is oh you know when it's yeah you can hear people who who maybe you know need a bit of practice in sort of public speaking it's it's a skill like any other um and something can be distracting and we know that once you've heard something it's very hard to then you know you kind of notice it all the time um but i think it's telling that like i said somebody just wouldn't notice it in particular people you don't notice it it's only when you go back and and you know something we do with our students when with kind of you know new sociolinguists when we when we teach them at university is and it's a really common thing uh task to do is is ask somebody to transcribe their own speech you know do have a little make a little recording of a conversation and transcribe your own speech and people are always amazed at, at what natural language really sounds like um, and it's full of it's full of these things and that's absolutely fine 
Um, it's just some people get criticized more than others. Absolutely. So, Rob, what do we do about all this prejudice? How do, how do we solve this? Okay, well, that, huh, that's, a really good, that's a really good question. I think there's two ways of doing this. And um, I, have, I, have, I have colleagues uh, who I work with who would take a really strong approach to this. And really, we, we just mean to, we need to kind of, you know, dismantle aspects of society. Um, it's, it's a very unfair world. And linguistically, it's a very unfair world in terms of varieties of English, but also hierarchies of other languages and why English should dominate in so many areas and why um, you know, multilingualism in some in some people is really praised, and uh, you know, uh, you know, for example, we can have, we can, t- you know, you see a kind of a, a British politician, and they'll and you'll see them. They might be in 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 France, and they might be able to speak French, and that would just be amazing. And everyone would just be, oh my God, listen to him. Isn't he incredible? He can he can just about have a conversation in French. And then you think about all the the. The millions of people in the UK who have English as a second, third, fourth language, but that multilingual that multilingualism isn't as valued as other multilingualism. Anyway, so there's a whole there's a whole inequality around language anyway, and one way would be to, you know really kind of dismantle some of these social structures. I but I think that needs to be accompanied by a more kind of a more gentle approach, which I think is my approach. Um, and to just engage people in 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 conversation and and ask people to think about ask people to reflect on on what they're doing. I think the problem is sometimes when we go in, uh, you know, when we go into these arguments sort of too too fiercely straight away, people dig their heels in and um, and and get offended and then take up the contrary position and, and then that's that. You'll never convince anyone. So. What I like to do is is talk to people and just just ask, encourage people to just just reflect on their use of language or how they view other people's use of language and try to think is you know, and point out not in a not in a kind of a mean way, not in a sarcastic way about uh, you know why some of their beliefs you know might not be great, but just you know encouraging people to think. Sometimes it needs to be called out more strongly, no question, and I do that as well. But I think for I think I think what I what I like to I guess what I'm targeting are people that are you know do have this this kind of prejudice do have these prejudiced beliefs um, and but are sort of open to thinking about where they come from and uh, and and I, and I think that's a really useful conversation to have once you start speaking to people and asking them to reflect you think okay yeah actually and people you can see people sort of thinking, okay, you know, I, actually, yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from and that isn't great. And I think, so that's a useful thing to do. And also I think, of course, through teaching with young people with in schools, I think schools should, language study should be far more embedded than it already is. Um, I think the only serious time you get towards anything, anything can be vaguely sociolinguistic-y is at English language A-level in the UK, which is a really good course. Um, but of course, by then, you know, a, a, that's only available to a, to a, and or only taken by a small number, a relatively small number of people. But I think language education, as in language awareness, as in understanding how people communicate, understanding how how many languages there are, understanding multilingualism, understanding how people adjust the way they speak, but without it being this idea that you must speak in this way, that this is this is a proper way of speaking, and you must do this by challenging those views and by challenging those those hierarchies of language through education, then I think we can, um, we can do some good work. But the rest of it is, is awareness raising, is getting people to, you know, like I say, just to think about it, just to think about, think about their views and, um, and, and give them the, give them the resources to, to kind of, you know, work it out for themselves that hold on some of these, some of these views I have about language, um, just aren't fair. And you have this chart that we're going to show in a moment, showing how the more you know about language, the less prejudiced you become. Can we just see that? Yeah. So this, yeah, so this is this is related to a specific area of language. To be fair, this is this is related to uh, to, to language pedantry. So this is maybe it's kind of slightly slightly different to, to to the rest of my work, which is really about kind of spoken language and identity. But I'm also very interested in 
when people have very strong views about correct language, and it's related, obviously, because it, like I say, it's 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 attitude towards language. And what this what this chart represents is a, a kind of a, a journey through through pedantry, and uh, and I identified four different points on this, and what you can see that blue line, so your knowledge about language, and and the idea is that once you learn a bit about language, um, you know, and you 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 know, you, maybe you do a bit of studying, maybe. Uh, and this is based on my experience, and uh, so from my point of view, I, I it's when I left university and I I worked as an English language teacher abroad, an EFL teacher, and that's that's the first time I'd kind of really learnt a bit about English grammar, and you start to, you know, you start to know the difference between, you know, between who and whom, and when we're supposed to use I and me, and and you know, stuff stuff that anyone who did grammar at school, uh, you know, would know already, but for my generation, we didn't really do much at school. And so you you have this armed with this new linguistic knowledge, you then become a bit kind of yeah you're quite proud of this knowledge and you become a bit snobby about it and you can't understand why other people can't use apostrophes correctly, and uh, and why they mix up uh, fewer and less and um, and and this kind of thing and so so you start correcting people either silently you know under your breath, or you start overtly correcting people and you become you come become a bit of a pedant. Then what happens? Is uh, at point B. This is when you 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 become you really become a kind of full-on pedant. You become quite pedantic. You notice all sorts of things. You get this sense of confidence from correcting other people. But notice your knowledge about language hasn't actually grown at all. You don't know any more about language. You're just still based based basing all of these these judgments on your on your fairly limited uh, understanding. Then at point C is when you start to learn a bit more about language. Maybe just through you know interest, self-study, maybe you started a course in linguistics, maybe you're just reading more about, I don't know, maybe you're reading books uh, from from other, from, you know, linguists. Um, and the point is, the more you learn about language, the more you realize ped- this, just pedantry just doesn't doesn't make sense. A lot of these these kind of grammatical rules or, or use of apostrophes that you're so strongly arguing for um, they're just they're just made up. They're just arbitrary rules. They're, 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 there's no real basis in in kind of uh, there's no logic to it. It's just a you know it's, it was a lot of these were just almost whims from 19th century grammarians that we kind of somehow stick to because it's seen as the standard because it's seen as prestigious. And so then at point D is when you really know a lot about language. I think your pedantry comes right down because by that point you're you're just more interested in. Hold on, you're not in, you're not interested in why this person isn't using an apostrophe uh, so-called correctly, um, but you know it's just a, it's a, it's a it's not really correct or incorrect. It's just a, it's a fashion. You know, apostrophes have changed the rules over the time anyway. So by the time you point D, you know a lot about language, and then you're just interested in you know, for example, me. I'm now more interested in people's attitude. I'm I'm interested in people's attitudes. I'm interested in why people get so het up about apostrophes um, rather than the actual apostrophes themselves. And I think that's a good place to be. And the reason this is so, the reason this chives with so many people is that anyone I've spoken to who is involved in language in some way kind of recognizes themselves on that on that scale. I really think it is a process. And like I say, it's a process I went through. I, I learned a bit about language. I became a full-on pedant. And then I learned a bit more about the language. And then I've kind of come through the other side. And I don't want to sound patronizing about this at all. Uh, but literally everyone I've spoken to kind of about language they, they recognize themselves they might just quite proudly say no i'm yep I, I understand it but i'm a pedant and i'm proud of being a pedant and i think okay well if you just do if you just learn a bit more you'll you'll see you'll come through the other side and i think it's uh i just think it's a process people can recognize yeah i'm hannah and i'm a recovering pedant <laughs> that's it you see yeah <laughs> It's a journey. Yes, it is. Uh, we're running out of we're running out of time, Rob. I just want to ask you one more question, which is about intelligibility. There are some accents in this country that I simply find very, very difficult to understand. In fact, my sister has been living in East Yorkshire for thirty years near Hull, and she's got a very close friend. And she says she sometimes just can't understand what she, what he's saying. She doesn't know if he's saying church or hearse. Right. And actually, there used to be a <laughs> another TV program. It was called Rabsi Nesbit, and it was set in Glasgow. It was a working-class Glaswegian who used to wear this sort of string vest. And again, I used to tune in to watch it simply for the experience of not being able to understand what they were saying. 
Um, now, in your book, you say that the problem is with the listener. You say the listener isn't listening hard enough. And I'm really listening hard. So, so who has the problem here? I th I, okay, so I think, yeah, it is, it, it, it is, it is the listener in general. So I, I think my point is that I think the point about listening better is more is a bit a bit bigger than that. I think it's more um I would I would make that argument in 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 the sense of when people are feel obliged to change the way they speak. When are people when people are told to change the way they speak or you must, you know, we we need this type of voice. Your voice isn't suitable for this. We need this type of voice or you're fine you're fine for this job, but you need to speak in this way, or you need to do this. I think in those instances, I think no, don't we don't 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 change the way people speak. Change change the way you listen. That's where we need to be look, addressing this. But in terms of intelligibility, more generally, it, it's it's familiarity. Obviously, um, when uh, you know there'll be there'll be there'll be people who have you know, what, what we might perceive as really strong Hull accents or really strong Glaswegian accents. Um, and But of course, their friends can understand them. The, their family can understand them um, because they've grown up with them and they, they're, just, they're just perfectly clear. So there's obviously nothing objectively uh, unclear about particular ways of speaking. Um, it's, it's to do with familiarity. And we're so familiar with some particular varieties of English. So for example, with RP, with BBC English, which was actively chosen as the language, the accent for the BBC right in the beginning. Since then, obviously, they started changing, uh, changing their views on that and started incorporating more accents. But right at the beginning, RP was chosen as, as the accent of the BBC on the basis of it being seen as the clearest accent. And and some people I'll talk to will say, well, no, that, that is a good point because I do find it very clear and I don't find other accents clear. But that's because we're most familiar. That's because all of the news bulletins for generations, all of the mainstream news uh, readers have an RP type accent, um, and and so that's what that's what we're used to. So it's become the seems the clearest accent again through familiarity. If if you know, I talk about this in the book. If the capital of England had been somewhere else, if the capital of England had been York or Doncaster or Lancaster or something, then that would become have become the standard accent, and that would be the clearest accent. You know, a Yorkshire accent would have been the clearest accent. Um, so it's all to do with familiarity. But, but of course, and then of course, when we want to talk about comedy things and talk about Rabsi Nesbitt, there's an element of, you know, that was kind of part of the, part of the joke that he was so hard to understand that it was, it, it was done in a way that, that kind of played, uh, played on that. And people will be using their accents often in a way to make themselves difficult to understand because again, it comes back to identity. It's our way of, you know, like I said, in one way we kind of, we use our accent to say, I'm part of this group. But as I said, the other way is the other side of that is to say I'm not part of that group I you know it kind it's a way of keeping people out as well as including people so uh, and that goes for different varieties of English or different languages we can use languages to maintain borders to be very inclusive but also to say we don't we don't want you well I think we've run out of time so thank you so much Rob I'm really proud to live in a country that has so many wonderful different accents and I want to thank you for throwing light on them and helping us understand more about accent prejudice. And if you want to dig deeper, here again is Rob's new book, You're All Talk, Why We Are What We Speak. And I have to say, I really enjoyed reading it. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.